0: Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Missy Mitchell-Macbeth joins the podcast this week, and Missy is a highly respected strength conditioning coach, and in this conversation we speak about what has changed over the years when training athletes, what qualities do the best coaches possess, and we talk about specialization of the youth athlete and what are some core tenets to training athletes. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm really glad I got to speak with Missy. But in other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So go ahead, click the link in the show notes, scroll through every single one of their products, and find find the ones that fit you and your wellness needs. Then once you get to checkout use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 216 of Something for Everybody with Missy Mitchell Macbeth. Hello, my friend, and welcome to something for everybody. My name is Aaron Mashwitz. Missy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Aaron.
0: Absolutely. The first and most important question that I'm going to ask you throughout this episode will be this, and it is, how are you doing? Uh, like, actually, how are you doing?
1: Um, the actual answer other than I'm great is I'm really, really busy and, um, kind of burning the candle at both ends. Um, but it's all for, you know, productivity and good things for the future. So despite the fact that I'm tired and, you know, spread pretty thin, I'm excited about what I'm doing right now.
0: Mm. Do you, um, speaking of being busy, at least for me, as being an athlete my whole life, I I really only sort of feel like worthy. Uh, If I'm busy, I've had a sort of regroup and rethink that um, by like taking rest. And I think that sort of progression has changed over the years about actually telling athletes they should rest and recover because that wasn't the way it was when I was younger. And I definitely want to get into that. But how, how do you feel about like being busy? Is that when you feel like your best self or just because you have things that you need to get done or, or what's going on there?
1: Um I think there's just so much to get done. It's really not even like a feeling or a want or a need. It's just logistics like I've got to do it. Um however to your point about like needing rest and recovery it's funny because I was telling my boss today I was like, "Hey, I think I'm going to have to cancel some meetings tomorrow because my telltale sign of developing something upper respiratory is starting. Like I've got like my tonsils swollen. So it's going down in the next 30, you know, 36 hours or whatever and I attributed it to I took a break this weekend and I went and just took care of myself for three days and came back. And all of a sudden my body's like, Oh, you rested. No, 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 we're not going to do that. We have to get sick now. So, um, it's, again, it's really not something like I want to do necessarily is be busy all the time. It's just a product of my life. And apparently my body doesn't respond very well to rest and recovery.
0: Man, I, I feel, I feel like uh, that a lot. Um, you know, because I, I work for myself, and so it's like, you know, if you, the work doesn't get done, like who, who's going who's gonna to do it? And so uh, I think people have Sorry, made ship or it working for right yourself look way too sexy. When-
1: Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. Hey, Andy. Can you bring me that? Okay. Apologies.
0: All good. I assume that's one of your four dogs.
1: It is one of my four dogs. It is my highly um, reactive, bad behavior dog.
0: Uh, that's why she sits with you in the room?
1: That is correct, because she cannot be in general population with the other three dogs, or she picks a fight. So she has to be by herself all the time.
0: Mm. I wasn't really sure what I was saying. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs>
1: Um I think we were just talking about rest and recovery for ourselves personally.
0: Oh yeah, like and then like like entrepreneurship now especially when you look at like social media as like super sexy, but the work is not sexy. Like I like I don't really want to be working until 9 or 10 at night like when my fiance is like sitting on the couch like waiting for me to hang out with her and I'm like well this has to be done. So but there's, there's also a version of it where it's like you got to put in the work, and you know that specifically, right? There's no alternative to that, but there has to be harmony uh, at least. But I think once you get to different levels, if you're working with youth or high school or elite, that harmony is a little bit different, and you can, and you can stress the work a little bit more depending on where they're trying to reach. If I'm working with a seventh grader, like we're just having fun. Like, that's the point. And there's plenty of time for all other stuff. Yeah, we want to learn how to use our body and things like that. But if I'm working at, you know, TCU with an elite level athlete who's potentially trying to go to the Olympics, (laughs) there's a little bit different way we're going to approach that rather than like a, a seventh grader who just needs to learn how to like run and, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You've always got to cater your messaging and your training program to the population that you're working with. Um, and I can tell you firsthand that when you try to extrapolate a collegiate programming mindset to younger athletes, it just doesn't go very well because they don't have the same, um, mindset. They don't have the same buy-in. They don't have the same level of seriousness. Um, and so you really do have to alter your approach for your clientele. Um, otherwise everybody involved is going to be in for a headache.
0: Yeah, uh, a big thing that I wanted to ask you was, you know, you've been you've been doing the strength and conditioning and the coaching for you know upwards of eighteen years now, and what what has changed? What has changed in the way we talk to athletes, we approach athletes, we train athletes? What are some of those those big levers?
1: So I want to preface this with the fact that I don't believe that the athletes themselves are different. Um, I think that that's a big Misnomer, misunderstanding, whatever that Gen Z is just this special population of humans and like they're soft. And, you know, we back in the day, like we're so much tougher and all that. Because number one, that's what was said about us when we were kids. The reality is, is that the environment that kids are raised in has changed to something that we were not exposed to growing up. We have no idea how we would respond or handle. The technology era, having a phone in hand, having access to all this information. So I think it's really unfair for us as coaches, as parents, as humans to attribute the blame to the athlete. Um, that being said, it is no longer a matter of coach says, so, so I'm going to do it. It is a matter of why is this valuable to me? Because they have everything at their fingertips. They have a phone that's super interesting. They can talk to their friends all the time. They have access to music. Um, my dog really wants to be on this podcast. I'm so sorry.
0: Um, but anyway,
1: yeah, she, she has lots to contribute to this. She podcasts a lot, but this is her wildest time ever apparently. Um, but anyway, you know, they have everything at their fingertips. So in order for you to motivate them, you have to clearly demonstrate the value behind what it is that they're doing. So like from a strength and conditioning standpoint, okay, Missy, why do I want to do this and take energy away from my sport? How is this going to be valuable to me as a volleyball player? Not just go squat this, go do this sprint, but how specifically is that going to help me? So I find myself from a communication standpoint, spending a lot more time teaching athletes why. Um, Obviously, we can't break down the minutia of every single thing because we don't have time and they don't really necessarily understand. Um, But I think that that's a huge piece of it. I think also because it isn't just a coach, I said, so therefore I do it environment. I think that you have to move away from some more traditional coaching methods, which are relatively punitive in nature of you did this wrong, so we're going to punish you. And I think you have to find more ways to positively reinforce them throughout their training process to motivate them because they just aren't motivated by the you know, I said so, or I'm going to run you until you puke because you didn't do such and such. So I think we just have to take a little bit different approach, one that we probably should have taken all along, just because the environment that kids are in has shaped kind of their experience and and we need to shape our coaching accordingly.
0: Yeah. And and blaming the athlete or the technology doesn't get you anywhere. Like the, the phone is not being removed. Like it's not going away. It's only just going to get more intense. And so we have to then, like you're saying, you know, shape the way we do it. But I also think an element is that now the coaches have to be better. The coaches have to be better. We have to be able to express why and what and how. And, you know, cause I work in mental skills. And so similarly, the athletes want to know why they should meditate or why they should be focusing on their breath or how am I going to be mentally stronger? Like, how do I do those things? How is it going to make me better at Hitting a volleyball or throwing a baseball, the same way with doing strength and conditioning. And if I can't relay that message with the actual finer details of it, then they're just going to brush it off and say, Well, it's not worth it. I'm going to go, you know, hit a baseball or work us on these more skill specific things. And so it forces the coach to get better, which also could make the coach um, feel a little insecure about himself because he hasn't worked on some of those skills that could potentially make him stand out from other people who are able to express those finer details. And so, there's comes good with everything. I mean, there's good and bad with literally everything, except like maybe pumpkin pie. I think that's probably the only only good thing. But um, <laughs> I only said that, I, I I can, that the other night.
1: I cannot disagree with you that <laughs> pumpkin pie is great. It is a great food.
0: Um, but like you know, so like that's that's part of the deal, and that's part of sort of the evolution of the, of the the human being that we're dealing with, which is the most. I mean, it's all relationship based. So if we can't create a relationship, then you know, what are we, like I could know everything in the whole world about mindset, but if I can't create a relationship, then no one's going to have that information.
1: Sure. And I think that that's like the biggest, you know, I went through that evolution where it was like coaching was easy. I started off in a military town in central Texas and it was just do what coach said. And then you would call home if a kid didn't do it or they weren't turning their assignment in or whatever. And it was like, you would have that kid in your office Five seconds later, apologizing, turning, whatever it is doing their makeup practice or whatever, you know, and fast forward 10 years, I've been through a division one experience where it's like, that's a business model. They're like super serious. They're competing for playing time. And so again, it's do what is, you know, do what you're told kind of situation. Well, then I transitioned to the high school level with little Gen Z athletes and, it's not working anymore. And at first I'm looking at them and I'm like, well, this is your problem. Like, this is not my problem. And I'm going to you know, beat you over the head with my methodology until you come along my way. And then finally I looked up and I was like, well, this isn't working. Nobody's having a good time. So who needs to change here? Is it the kids or is it me? And so I had to go through a shift in my coaching methods, which even to this day, like with coaching the athletes now, like there's things that I would have... You know, been super set on a standard, you know, a kid showing up late or whatever it is. I would have freaked out on that seven or eight years ago. And now it's like, hey, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being here tonight. You know what I mean? So, just changing our coaching, like you said, like you alluded to, we have to be better as coaches. And that can be really frustrating in the learning process. But if you don't have the ability to, you know, use your soft skills and develop those relationships, you're just not going to be successful with today's athlete.
0: Yeah. Was there, was there sort of a moment in time? Was there an event that made you realize that you needed to sort of alter the way you coached or, you know, adapt some new philosophies? What was that like for you?
1: Yeah. So, um, obviously my dog has been really heavily involved in this podcast already. So we'll just go ahead and keep on trucking along that path. I have four rescue dogs. Like you said, um, each have varying degrees of anxiety, behavioral issues, all the stuff. Um, I have one dog who she's three. She's just not my favorite dog to work with and train. However, the other dogs love her. Like she has so many upsides. She's super sweet, you know, all the stuff. Well, about the time I had gotten her and was starting to work with her and train her, I had an athlete that... I, and, you know, coaches will be like, Oh no, I don't dislike any of my athletes. And I'm like, that's a lie. Everybody has athletes that they don't like. And that when they graduate, you'll never see or talk to them again by everyone's choice. Right. You just don't vibe with some people. Well, I had one of those athletes. She was stubborn. Everything was a discussion. Um, And so I found, found myself getting frustrated with her. And, you know, you wear that on your sleeve. Kids know you're frustrated. They know you're upset with them, whatever. And one day she came in the weight room, and I just saw her start interacting with her teammates, and her teammates loved her. She was just funny, silly, and all of a sudden I started to notice that oh, like she does have an upside. If I step away and I just watch her organically interact, I can see all of these great things about her. And I thought about that dog that I was working with, and I was like, there. You know, I don't want to say that he kids a dog. Like people get upset by that, but. I saw some similar qualities in them, but more importantly, I saw a similar response in myself. Mm. And I asked myself if I would show frustration and anger with that dog in a training session because she wasn't doing what I was asking her to do. And the answer was no, because the reason that she wasn't asking or wasn't doing what I was asking is she didn't understand it. An athlete is no different than that. 99% of athletes want to do the right thing. They just maybe don't always understand that. And so that kind of moment where I just had this aha of you know I've never treated a dog this way and yet when I have a 14-year-old girl in front of me I'm showing frustration and anger over literally the same thing. Like that's not acceptable to me. And so in that moment it's like I have to shift how I approach her And I also have to uh, shift how I approach other athletes in a similar boat. And so I kind of started doing a deep dive into more like positive reinforcement-based stuff, into more self-determination theory-based stuff of how can I, you know, give athletes more autonomy? How can I give athletes a greater sense of connectedness? You know, all the different things and pieces to that versus a, you know, just do it the way I said it because I said it mindset.
0: Yeah, I mean... One of the one of the markers of an excellent coach, which I, I want to get into more qualities of great coaches, but is being able to say the same thing like multiple different ways. Um, I mean, I was the same growing up. It was here, do what I say, and this is it. And that resonated for me because I wanted to be doing the thing that I was doing. So I didn't really care who was telling me to do it. I just wanted to play baseball. So it's like, great. You seem like you know what you're doing. I'll just do it. But a lot of athletes don't act that way. And if I keep saying the same thing over and over again and they don't understand it, it's 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 on me. But I, like you, have to be able to have the, the willpower to say, oh, that's like a my fault thing, not a your fault thing. But it takes a lot of time because like you, you're probably only seeing athletes for maybe, you know, one hour a week. And there's probably 60 athletes with you while you're doing the thing. So it's hard to like personally understand everyone's whole life story. But over like maybe a year or two years or three years span, if they start with you at a young age, then you can start to develop more of a relationship and you can start to pick them a little bit and uplift them in certain ways, how they feel that. But that that takes a long time. And so um, I think that's important to note as well. Like it's not just like the first time you see them, you should know everything about them and be able to motivate them to be the, their best selves like that happens over time, just like a good um, relationship would develop over time. I agree. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I'm a coach. I coach baseball 15-year-olds right now. And so I, I think about a lot what qualities represent an amazing coach. Um, so in, in your mind, what are those qualities?
1: I think probably the biggest one that I've alluded to, and you just did as well, is that the understanding that every athlete that you work with is not you. They may not be like you even a little bit. So I think sometimes as coaches, we have that familiarity bias where we want things to be the way that they were when we were growing up or the way that we like to be coached. So we've got to kind of cast that aside to be a great coach and find exactly what motivates every single athlete um, and like you said, that's not a, I know it on day one process. That may be a hundred mistakes before you get things right. But I think little ways that, you know, we can facilitate that. I like to um, try to get to know my athletes one way that I do it. I'm not, I'm very introverted. So I'm not that coach that's just over in the big middle of everybody's life. And I'm trying to manage this session. And like you said, I only see them an hour a week. So it's difficult to do those things. But something that I've put into place is having athletes coach each other. And Mm. then when the athletes are coaching each other, I can walk around and I can say like, Hey, how do you feel today how were your workouts at school and through some of those really simple questions that relate to training you end up finding out a lot about those athletes and you find out you know what their personalities are like and how assertive they are and more importantly their understanding that you know i'm not just this person in the weight room telling you what to do i legitimately have an interest in you what you're doing how i can help you with the, with your career and i think that kind of ties into a next big point of as a coach a great coach understands like my playing career is over. This is about the athletes in front of me and giving them the very best experience, whether that's an experience like I had or one very different. How can I best serve them either to, you know, for me, a big realization was the first time they come in the weight room with me, maybe the first time they're ever in a weight room in their whole life. And so that pivotal moment can make the difference between this is something I hate and I will not continue doing this and not continue the life skill of fitness, or this is something that I'm excited about and makes me feel good about myself and probably something I'm more likely to continue. So again, just, you know, tailoring our message to the clientele in front of us, um, with that comes humility again, it's not about you as a coach. And I think very, very often we see, um, and particularly at the high school level, I find this to be honestly really comical when you see coaches with big egos, because I'm like, you know, I came from the power five level, right? So to me, it's like, you're Gary Patterson, you're the head coach of TCU, and you've won a Rose Bowl and all these other bowls yeah, you, you get to have an ego about that. Like you're Gary MF Patterson, right? But then like, I transitioned down to the high school level and I see these coaches with egos and I'm like, you think like, we think we're big time because we're at the 6A, which for, you know, people outside of Texas, that's our largest classification. Like you think that you're big time because you're a 6A football coach or whatever it is. And it's like, no, nobody knows who you are. Like, and so it's, it's comical to me when you see coaches that have an ego about them, like, where, you know, I'll go in and say like, oh, I'm one of the best youth and developmental athlete coaches for volleyball's, volleyball in the country. That's my expertise. But I don't have an ego of I can't learn something or get better for my athletes. So I think that's another huge piece is like humility, dropping the ego, recognizing it's not about us, it's about our athletes. Um, I think that that goes a long way as a coach, because that's going to help you continue learning. Because just as athletes, are evolving with the times, we have to evolve with our knowledge and the times as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, coaches should be trying at least to embody all of the traits they want their athletes to possess. So if I'm this head football coach at a 6A school in Texas and hasn't won a game in five years, but I still think I'm all that in a bag of Cheetos, then my then I wonder why my kids are being obnoxious in class or having an ego about them when they walk through the halls. I'm like, I didn't teach them that. Well, you're teaching them that through sort of the way you present yourself and the way you talk to teachers and the way you want special treatment for your athletes when they're all in high school and they should be doing all the normal things that everyone else is doing. If you want them to feel calm, cool, and collected under pressure, that's how you have to feel when they make a mistake, that you're calm and cool and collected and all of these things. And if you want them to be humble, if you want them to be understanding of someone's different diverse background, you have to do the same thing. Because all kids, even in high school, especially younger than that, are just watching what you do. And they want to do what you do. Um, Not specifically for like a coach who is a head coach. And obviously, it works in the weight room too. Like if if I do this movement properly and show you what to do, then the athletes are going to do it as well. And then the kids you have coaching them also in that sort of um, the thing that you've created also makes it much more likely that they're going to do it because they see role models, they see you as a role model, and now everyone's doing sort of the same thing to get better. So it all falls in line with how your words and actions line up, I think.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think being a role model is huge. And I think there's a big disconnect often in coaching between what we say is important And what we actively demonstrate is important. And so I think you hit the nail on the head with that of athletes are watching every single thing that you do act accordingly. Like that doesn't mean that you have to be able to go out and get on the line of scrimmage right now, or I don't have to be ready to go play, you know, in a 17 U volleyball tournament at the highest level in the country. But if you tell, you know, Coaches make up things like, oh, having your shirt tucked in is really important in practice. Okay, well, coach, you better tuck your shirt in too. Otherwise, like you're just painting yourself into a corner with irrelevant rules and athletes are going to, whether they call you out or not in their mind, they see that you're not doing the things that you're asking of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, well, I have a college degree and I've been through this. That's not a, like, that doesn't hold water anymore with athletes and it really shouldn't hold water with us as adults.
0: Yeah, very interesting story uh, that I have about when I started coaching 12 year olds. Um, you know, I told them that I played baseball. I told them that I played division one. Doesn't, doesn't matter. The only time they started listening to me about hitting is when they saw me hit a baseball on the field and it went farther than they could hit it. And they're like, oh, like maybe we will listen to him. And that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. They want to see that the, the person that's trying to teach them how to do the thing they're doing has a little bit better skill than them and not that you always have to show kids but that's something that is important because they're learning from that i mean they see people on tiktok all day who are doing all of these cool things and they want to, those are their role models but if we can be like in person role models expressing those things in the right way um then that's important and that's that was like an interesting learning tool for me like not that i have to go hit on the field and take bp with my team but it it they want to know that you can do stuff so you get out there and you field some ground balls and you play catch with them and you do all this stuff now when they get past my skill level i'm not sure i'll be able to handle that but right now i can i can, I can still move a little bit so it's all good
1: that's where you just got to have a good assistant coach that can demo for you uh because you know like me having worked at the power 5 level i was not a division 1 athlete and i'm working with athletes that are far superior to me from an athletic development standpoint but you know they still respected you number one because you were a good communicator but again back to that humility piece like once you do get trumped in your athleticism then you have to demonstrate value to them in another way or Mm. you just demonstrate humility to say like hey this is not going to be a great demonstration here's what i'm doing wrong And then you let them figure it out, them go do it, pull one of them out as your demonstrator and say, this is exactly how I want it done. She's doing it so much better than me. And I think athletes appreciate that.
0: 100%, 100%. Yeah, it's that. It's sort of this idea of like you're building this like emotional emotional bank account, right? You're showing that you care first and foremost, that you want to support them, but you don't know everything because no one knows everything. You don't have it all figured out. And the more honesty you have, the more money you're putting in that bank account. And let's say you do make a mistake or you say the wrong thing. When you do apologize, you have so much money in that a bank account that when you withdraw some, it's not that big a deal. And the athlete still continues to trust you. Now, if there's no level of care or support and you mess up, they're like, well, I'm done with that person. Like they they have no value to me. They're not going to show me how to continue to get better because we have no, you know, Uh, there's, there's no money in the account. And so all the withdrawals are done. And so now I'm, I'm in negative balance. You know, I guess I've kept going with this money analogy, but it is what it is. I actually
1: really, I've not heard it in this context before. I've heard it in the context of like, you know, an off season, every time you train, you put money in the bank and then like in season, every time you practice and compete, you withdraw it. But I really like it from the emotional standpoint, because I agree, like, you know, you have this long history of positive reinforcement with athletes and building a relationship so that when the time comes, to be honest and to correct them it's not hurtful it's not a personal attack they understand that it's coming from a place of genuinely wanting them to get better and they're much more receptive to that versus the flip side which is just constantly correcting them all the time with no relationship then it's just like coaches mean kind of thing mhm
0: yeah there has to be uh positive reinforcement within ourselves and that's something we can learn to do but also from the outside and it's much more important to to praise effort than someone's outcomes, right? Thank you for working hard. Thank you for showing up today. I see your effort. I see your hustle. Now, that may turn into a great play or a great performance. But that's less important than how we got there. And you can especially do that in the weight room because you got to show up in the weight room or else you're never going to see the gains you want. You can't just like think about lifting weights. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's it. Uh, it doesn't work like that. But if you put the time in, there's, there's a way to see it like so tangibly that I think is, is cool for, for you athletes, froze. but
1: that kid out on you. Yes. Yeah. You froze for about the last 20 seconds. Oh, um,
0: yeah. I mean, just that, like when you get into the weight room, right, you, you can see those gains and, uh, that's important for athletes to be able to positively reinforce that. And so again, you're trying to praise that effort, like showing up consistently more than any sort of outcome based result. And I think that's really important, but I'd like, uh, to talk more about this, this self-determination theory that you mentioned earlier. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Um, yeah. So self-determination theory basically says that motivation has three key components. So number one is autonomy. Um, athletes, people, whoever have to feel like even my dog, when I train her, she has autonomy in the process. You have to feel like you have some control and some choice. So ways that we can build that in. Obviously, if I have a, you know, I train as young as 11U, and so I have a seven year old on my team. My little seven year old is not going to be able to come in and decide what she's going to do top to bottom in her program, right? That's not a realistic ask of her, and she would not make good decisions more than likely. However, I can give athletes choices and things that either don't matter, like maybe they all want to pick their, Tuesday workout shirt, if that's a thing, or they want to pick their travel suit, or they want to choose between two styles of running. Okay. Or we can give them controlled choices where we narrow it down and say, you know, we've got this hip mobility exercise. Do you want to do exercise A or B? Well, I want to do B. All right, cool. Do five reps. They're going to be more motivated to do Exercise B because they feel like they got to pick it. All right. So, autonomy is a big thing in motivation, and you can see it in the workplace. Um, It's much different when you take on a project yourself because you're excited about it, you know, and you give yourself some direction versus being handed grunt work and said, like, hey, you're going to do this. You know, it can be the same task, but choosing to do it. Make, you know, gives you more motivation. Not always practical, obviously, like sometimes, like we discussed, things have to get done, um, but autonomy is one. The next one is competence. So, athletes, people, they need to feel like they're good at something or that the something that they're working on is going to benefit them and make them better in some way. So, like you just said, praising effort. Um, we're timing sprints right now. And it's like I've got some kids that are running 11 miles per hour, and then I have some kids that are running 15 miles per hour. If I do nothing but praise the 15 mile per hour kids, the 11 mile per hour kids are going to shut down because they're so far away from that, they feel like they're not good at anything. But if I instead praise an 11.1 and then an 11.2 and say, oh my gosh, your effort was so great, you're getting better you know, they're seeing their results. That's actually why I'm a fan of frequent testing in strength and conditioning instead of every six weeks is you can show them, you know, really daily progress, daily, um, improvements and outputs for their efforts. You know, they get that feeling of competence and that's going to make them more motivated. And then the last one, which we've already touched on a lot is relatedness. They have to feel a sense of connection to you as a coach, to their teammates. And so obviously all the ways that we would build relationships with them and have, you know, that history of positive reinforcement, you know, that bank account that you talked about, the more we can fill that bank account for each individual athlete, the more we're going to get out of them from a motivation standpoint.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It makes me think about how I didn't know any of what these things mean, but how some of them showed up when I was getting trained in college. Like we would always get to pick our ab exercises at the end or our core exercises. And that made me want to do them much more than hey, you got five minutes of planks, you know, go ahead. Like, oh, what sort of planks do you want to do today? Or do you want to do, you know, shoulder taps or do you want to do the uh the band one where you hold it out in front of you, whatever that one's called. Um and so Call of that press. <laughs> yeah, that one. Um that's a good one. <laughs> um so yeah, that makes me think about that. And so that's cool. That's cool. Um my next my next sort of point of emphasis. Would be the coaches themselves. We talked a lot about coaches working with athletes, and you know we talked about some qualities that really good coaches have. A lot of those coaches are just servants. All they want to do, they want to serve, and they want to be a value and of service to the people um, that they care about because they love doing this thing. Right? No one really gets into coaching except for the coach of the University of Alabama or some college coaches to get rich. A lot of us just do it because we want to do the thing that we want to do. Like we love the sport or whatever we're talking about or the movement, we love it. And so that I think sometimes can take away from the coaches actually taking care of themselves. They're just too hyper-focused maybe on taking care of the athletes. Um, so, so what do you think about that, why coaches sort of ignore their own health, their own well-being, um, and their own you know, service to themselves?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty outspoken on this one. I actually uh, was a partner in a business that addressed um, specifically coaches health at one point, um, which I sold my share to go on my own solo venture, which I'm writing a book and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's I've got to do all these things for everyone else. So I'm, you know, if I'm I'm a high school coach, I coach two sports, one of which I may not know anything about. So I've got to learn to coach that sport. Now I'm teaching one to two classes and I don't have a conference period because I give that up to do tutorials with someone or I have to have a department meeting or whatever it is. So then I take all the work that kids are doing and I have to take that home and grade it. Oh, by the way, I have a family. I have to drive the bus to and from games. In that 24 hours that we all get, at some point, there's just not enough time, Mm. right? And so... You know, people come home like I coaching full time. I'm coaching part time now, but coaching full time, I would come home just so exhausted. It was six or seven days a week in the early stages of my career, um, sometimes like 17, 18 hour days, crazy schedule. You don't want to work out. You don't want to train. And then by the way, you don't want to cook when you get home. So you just hit the drive through. Right. And so it's really it's not a product of people being lazy. It's actually a product of people working really, really hard. They just themselves is the, the one thing that falls by the wayside, um, but I think that that actually should be one of the first things that we take care of um, is ourselves physically and then also mentally and emotionally because coaching is draining, it is exhausting, and so even getting you know from a physical health standpoint, like getting to where I recover better, getting to where I have more consistent energy throughout the day, that's going to make me a better coach. From a social, emotional, mental standpoint. I have to be in the right frame of mind to go coach so that when an athlete frustrates me, so that when a parent frustrates me, so that when the game is not going the way that I want it to go, I respond appropriately in a way that to use the bank account again fills that bank account instead of continually withdraws it. And so I think that when we look at our own bank accounts, like we do have to be making deposits into that so that we're not con- so that we're not, you know, overdrawn. We're, no, we're not negative balance because that is going to negatively impact your coaching, whether you think it is or not. So I think really, really important to just carve out time for yourself just as you would if one of your athletes came in and said, Hey, like, will you come work with me on passing or setting or whatever for 30 more minutes? You would find the time as a coach to do that. You've got to do the same thing for yourself.
0: Yeah. I think this, it's this idea of just trying to be proactive instead of reactive. Because we want our athletes to do the exact same. You're going you're gonna to do some stuff with your volleyball players, jumping, landing, that are going to help hopefully prevent ACL tears, because that's something that happens very commonly in volleyball. So we're going to be proactive with that. We're going to learn how to jump. We're going to put in our dynamic warm up. We're going to do things like that. So hopefully it doesn't happen, right? It might still, right? Whatever. But we're going to try and do that. And the same thing with a coach. Like I am going to proactively try and take care of myself. If I have 10 minutes to do something, great. I'm going to go for a walk to try and clear my head. If I have 30 minutes, okay, maybe I'll pop down to the wherever the weight room is and try to get some some lift some weights in. Or maybe I have some time to just journal out my thoughts. Or maybe I have an extra hour to spend time with my kid or whatever the case may be. If we can start being proactive, because we're going to schedule out our whole day. So if we can just put some non-negotiables in like, hey, uh, coach, can you do this meeting here? Then I think it's it's if you're honest with your player, like, no, I, this schedule this time is, is for me actually Like, and when you put stuff in your schedule, I want to honor that as well. And we're teaching people these lessons for life um, while being the role models we set out to be. And so I get it. Like, cause for a long time before all these things got specialized, the head coach was everything. He was the speed and agility, he was the strength and conditioning, he was the therapist, he was the mental skills coach, he was the trainer, he was the doctor, he was everything. And now I know at some schools where they don't have a large budget, that the coach to this day is still doing that same thing. Now we've progressed where we have a lot of specializations like you and I in our specific fields, but it's still hard to get coaches to buy into that because this is their baby. This is everything that their whole life is about. And I get that full, wholeheartedly. Like I don't want anyone coming here messing with my culture and my athletes. What I don't know what you're doing. But there has to be a level of coaches nowadays of, of letting go of that, of delegating tasks so there's more time that I can spend on being an expert in my area and also more time that I can spend potentially with my partner or my kids or my health so I can coach for 30, 40, 50 years and not potentially be burned out at 10 and doing a disservice to the people that we're actually trying to serve. So that's what I think.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think some of, you know, some of it is when you're young, you do have to do all those things like you do have to hustle and you cannot have those same boundaries that you can when you're a little bit more established. Because if you try, if you're like, I'm sorry, I'm going to use this 30 minutes during my conference period to go run, your department chair is going to say, No, you're not. You're sitting in this meeting. And if I hear it again, like you're fired, right? Mm -hmm. So, but as you get older, you have more autonomy to make those decisions for yourself. But you're so used to just go, go, go all the time that you haven't made it habitual to include those small things throughout your day. Um, And so it just kind of falls by the wayside. So I think it's kind of a vicious cycle, but I think it's one that I think we're seeing people pay more attention to mental health and pay more attention to the things that can promote that as a measure of increasing productivity at work and also, as you mentioned, at home with your family.
0: Yeah, when I when I think about sort of the the fundamentals of being a human being, just to like simplify it as much as humanly possible so it can be less complicated than it is, you wanna move well, you wanna eat well, you wanna think well, and you wanna sleep well. That's it. Try and do those four things and maybe if you get like three of the four or two of the four, or just one of the four, like you're in a step in the right direction. I would say that probably sleep is the number one, number one, number one, because if you don't have any energy, then you can't you can't get to your full capacity. you're probably not going to eat well because you're too tired, you're probably not going to move because you're too tired, and you're definitely not going to eat well because it's not convenient to to eat well. And so sleep, I, I think, would be number one. and so my next sort of point would be, what, what are you thinking about now when it comes to rest and recovery for athletes now that's like a big marker that people are thinking about?
1: So actually, when you were talking about that, it, you, know, you, you hit a great point where it's like, okay, here's the four things, but get one or two of the four. So I think a lot of times when we preach these recovery narratives, whether it's for ourselves or athletes, we're like, it has to be seven to nine hours of sleep, period. Like, if you're not doing that, then you're not an athlete. You're not serious. Be that as it may, some of our athletes work jobs till 10 o'clock at night and they've got to do homework and all that kind of stuff. So, I think that, you know, from a rest and recovery standpoint, teaching really practical solutions versus trying to teach ideal black and white narratives. So, from a sleep perspective, okay, you're not going to not scroll on your phone at night, but can you? you know, turn on night shift and have less blue light exposure. And can we, instead of going right up until we go to bed, can we potentially put the phone away for 15 minutes? Okay. We've got that down. Now can we put it away for 30 minutes? Like now can we go an hour without our phone before bed? So one, just making things like chunking it into small achievable steps. Um, but also, shaping those steps over time so that we do get closer to hitting the ideal mark of seven to nine hours. Um, from same thing from a nutrition standpoint, you know, that is huge in recovery is nutrition and hydration. Can you carry a water bottle with you to class all the time? Can you bring two, you know, one snack today that has a carb and a protein in it to help facilitate recovery? Okay, now can we maybe make a better selection for dinner, whatever it is. So I think when we just like hit people over the head with, you have to be eating five to seven fruits and vegetables a day and sleeping seven to nine hours, and you can only have this much screen time and blah, 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 they become really overwhelmed and they just kind of quit on all of it because they see it as this big looming thing that is not attainable versus if we take it and say, Hey, let's do one of these four things better. I think that we're in a much better place to get them to be um, committed to those things in the long run.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's this guy who wrote a book on habits called BJ Fogg, and his basically main thing was make your habits too small to fail. And I I I freaking love that. Right. If if all you can do is like have one apple and that's like your thing, like that's it. Do that thing. Like, so if all you can do is have five minutes to go for a walk, that five minutes is fucking incredible and it will help. It's not too little. It's not too small. And then when you're starting to build habits and you want to build a habit like the phone thing, okay, I look at my phone right up until I close my eyes. Okay, what if I put it down for 30 seconds right before I close my eyes? That's too small to fail. You can actually do that. You definitely can. And what about when you wake up? You immediately look at your phone. Okay, can you wait 15 seconds? Okay, I can build on 15 seconds. I can go to 30 seconds. Now I'm at a minute. Holy cow. And now I even wait till after I pee and drink water to look at my phone. That's like 10 minutes. Now you're crushing it. But you made it. You didn't just say, "Okay, I'm, when I wake up, I'm not looking at my phone for 4 hours." <laughs>
1: okay. Right. Sure.
0: Like, yeah, okay, nobody's doing that. Like that doesn't that's not even a realistic thing. But if you make it too small to fail and you give yourself an actual chance to do it, I think that's that's really cool. That's like at least my favorite thing on
1: habits from that guy BJ Fogg. Um And so
0: one of the other things that I thought was interesting that we could talk about, are you still there? You still got me?
1: I am. Yeah. You froze for a bit, but I'm back.
0: Okay. Did you, did you hear what I, the last part, I didn't ask any other questions yet, but unless no, you want to comment no, on we that. No, no, we were
1: just finishing talking about uh, effectively atomic habits, but by a different author.
0: Yes. Basically the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. I can't always give James Clear all of the credit. Okay. There's other people who write books. on Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. But the last thing is that a lot of people talk about nowadays is um, this idea of specialization. Um, what do you think about that, In at least in terms of the weight room? Should we be training for our specific sport? When? How early? Things like that.
1: So this is actually going to be the first section of chapter one of my book that should publish in the spring. But Whoever came up with the idea of sports specialization in the weight room, um, has a really poor understanding of long-term athletic development, and they have a really good understanding of marketing. Because they've marketed this concept of that we have to be training specifically for volleyball and specifically for basketball and whatever. And you'll see it in my, like, when I post Instagram videos, I'm like, three exercises a volleyball player should be doing. And it's like, well, this is actually three exercises everyone should be doing. But you're trying to hit the volleyball community over the head with it. Um, But generally speaking, particularly with younger um, athletes of a lower training age, which is how long they've been consistently training in a strength conditioning program, With those younger athletes, basics work, and they work for a really, really long time. So you don't necessarily need to specialize what you're doing. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, you mentioned ACL tears with volleyball. You also have shoulder injuries, low back injuries, ankle injuries. We do need to be addressing the specific demands of the sport but we're going to address those specific demands using pretty general means that could cross a multitude of sports for about 90% of our programming. Where I kind of nuance training a little bit is in how I explain to athletes, this is exactly how it relates to your sport. Um, but no, we don't need to be specializing and doing, you know, Sport mimicry exercises, which is basically performing the sport movement under load. There's a million problems with that. Problem number one is that very often, like the resistance is too high to actually be performing the movement at a speed that transfers to the sport. So mm. it eye tests as a good exercise with transfer to the volleyball court, but in reality, it's too slow or. You know the muscle contraction does not occur at the right point in the range of motion because of how the load is on the band or whatever it is. So it looks specific to a parent or a sport coach, but to a strength coach, we're like, no, that's that's not it. That's not the move. Um, so I kind of got a little off track there, but you know, basically, we don't need to be doing that from the standpoint of there's not as much transfer, but also the fact that you know, let's say that we're we're loading a volleyball spike approach. Well, they're already doing that a million times a week in practice. So then in training, we're going to go do that a million more times a week. Like that doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, while we're focusing on that, we're not focusing on the other, you know, several movement capabilities that athletes need to be successful. We're not focusing on speed, power, strength, you know, in general movement capacities, um, we're just continuing to hammer that same like jump, 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 jump over again, over and over again that they're already getting a ton of. We need to take our training and we need to fill the other buckets that the sport does not fill to develop a more well-rounded athlete. Because ultimately, athleticism is going to serve as the foundation for sports skill. So if we want to build a taller structure of sports skill, we're going to need to build a wider base with that general athletic development when they're young. Um, so that they are more athletic and a better athlete is going to make a better volleyball player with skill being equal. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's very important. Very interesting. Because a lot of people talk about that in terms of like only playing one sport and getting really specialized in that sport very quickly and early on. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of kids are quitting youth sports, which is not good for you know our young people. Um, People should be playing sports. Now they have to play them seriously, but they should be moving around unstructuredly with their friends. But since we're trying to specialize kids so early, like they're doing, you know, baseball or volleyball 12 months out of the year. But what about like the other sports? Now, when you get to a certain age, I get it. You have to start to hone in. You know, you're trying to get certain places. I understand that I did that, but like before you're maybe 16, like 15, like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, like do it all, play everything. You're just learning how to do different things with your body because if I'm going to go play basketball with my buddies, that'll probably translate well to me, me me be able to move laterally on the baseball field. If I'm going to play ultimate frisbee with my friends, that just teach me that I can run and I can move and I can cooperate and I can do all of these things. So all of that is really important. And then in, in the weight room, it's, it's the same thing. If I'm a baseball player and all I do is rotate because I'm a right handed hitter, and then I go into the weight room and I do more of that over and over and over and over and over again, you know, at some point I'm probably going to get hurt. I'm going to be dominant on one side. I'm going to be weak elsewhere. Um, and so there's a lot of things that go into that, but you know,
1: whatever. Yeah. And I think that like, to your point about early specialization not from a training standpoint but from a sport standpoint i didn't really address that you know but exactly like you said optimally they wait until sophomore year in high school which is 16 15 16 right but for the ones that have already specialized young and there are cases where kids don't want to play another sport and again like back to that autonomy like are you going to force them to play two sports when they don't want to like that's huge and like the I always say I'm not going to weigh in on football stuff, but it's like football coaches that are like forcing a kid to play a second sport in the spring, like to be competitive. And it's like the kid doesn't want to do it. And it's not because the kid is lazy, but the kid just has no interest in wrestling or track or baseball or whatever it is like are we going to force that on people like is that really a better system um so if you do have a single sport athlete because sometimes kids are in theater or they're in choir or they're in orchestra and so they or they go to church a lot or you know whatever it is like there's a million reasons why they might or they have a job they might not want to do another sport so we have to supplement the fact that they are specializing early with a well-rounded strength and conditioning program mm. that fills the buckets that another sport might. And that's where I think that, you know, like the phone's not going away, early sport specialization is unfortunately not going to go away either because the skill demands of sports are so tremendously high right now. You know, I always say we would not have won a state championship at Byron Nelson in volleyball Had our athletes not been specialized from from a young age, because the skill that was required to win at that level was so high, they they couldn't have done it um, if they were all playing basketball and running track. That's just the reality. So what do we do instead? We've got to get them participating in strength and conditioning to offset those overuse injuries like you referenced.
0: Yeah. Do you... Do you have a core set of exercises that you think are, are important for everyone to be able to do and master?
1: Um, I mean, generally it's, you know, every strength coach, shocker, squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, brace, and rotate, right? Um, what each specific one is going to look like for every athlete, like not every athlete is going to, I don't, I don't back squat athletes um, unless I absolutely have to, but a rabbit hole, let's not go down, but anyway, that, you know, a squat pattern. Okay. But what does that look like for each individual athlete? If I have a six foot four kid that has super long femurs, probably a heavy barbell front squat is not going to be the best option for her unless she has really good mobility. Okay. So she might be doing a goblet squat on a wedge, or we might be using a split squat, a single leg exercise instead. Um, so the basic patterns are going to be the same for everyone how those patterns, you know, fit into each individual athlete's training program are going to vary. However, I will say if you catch them pretty young, um, like my 11 and under kids, my 12 and under kids, like I'm catching them at an age where if I can get strength in some of those, you know, end ranges of motion, then we can maintain that over time. Um, and so those athletes, you know, if they start younger, you're more likely to see more of them doing, whatever your top tier exercise and your progression later down the road.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So you, you want to have a, just like a sport, you want to have a base layer of learning some of these important movement patterns, but they're uh, person and sport dependent on what you might be, what you might program into their, their uh, workout plan.
1: Yeah. Less sport and more person, because as I said, particularly at that lower level, you know, it's, everybody can benefit from lower body strength and upper body strength. So it's like, what are the best ways to train lower and upper body strength? Well, it's going to be some sort of, you know, squat variation or lunge variation and some sort of pressing motion um, that's going to cross every sport. Mm.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time, Missy. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, What's the best place for people to go find you, learn more about you, contact you, send you DMs.
1: Sure. Um, Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at Missy M. Macbeth, and it's Macbeth with no A, so M-C-B-E-T-H. And then my website is safeirontraining.com.
0: Fantastic. All of that uh, link below in the show notes for more on Missy, but thank you for your time, and we'll see everyone next time. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Missy. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you did as well. What idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply? And if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbitz directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. So thank you for your support in advance, and thank you for listening. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others, and I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.